Sandy and I had the great privilege to spend the last week at the PCA's General Assembly in Memphis to catch up with a lot of dear friends of this congregation. Many of the church supplanters, church planters that we support uh, sought me out to once again express their thanks to Woodruff Road. I spoke to John Blevins, who's doing our church plant in the Knoxville area. Ben Cappers, who took his own core group with him from Illinois to St. George, Utah, and they are thriving and flourishing. He wanted to come and give me a report. Jagar and Jemima Chinovan, of course, are in the greater D.C. area. And then Peter Zabo, several of the people we support. We saw this last week, and it was great to worship and to legislate with them. Over the last several years of pastoral ministry, I've had countless sessions with men and women that are asking, what is God's will for my life? always about a specific choice with the stated fear that they could be missing somehow God's will for their life. And just over the last year, the following questions have been asked me all along this line, this line of questioning, what is God's will for my life? I've noticed five distinct questions. These are, these are earnest believers. The first is, what is God's will for my vocation? And when I began to answer and say, well, first of all, let's talk about choosing a lawful vocation, one that would not require you to labor on the Lord's Day. So, for example, if you're thinking of being a pro football player or a NASCAR driver, that's ruled out, although I don't think that's really a question for most of the people in this room. But, but Carl, you don't understand what I'm asking. I'm, I'm at a crossroads. I need you to tell me if it's God's will for me to be an engineer or a doctor. Second line of questioning, Carl, I want to know God's will for my marriage. Am I marrying the right person? Once again, you'll notice how I typically answer, well, if you're a believer and planning on or wanting to marry an unbeliever, you are marrying the wrong person. But Carl, you don't understand what I'm asking. Is it specifically God's will for me to marry Bill or Joe? Third line of questioning, Carl, which, which school should I attend? I get it wrong again. Well, you shouldn't attend this school. You shouldn't even go to college if you're going to be loaded down with so much debt or, or if you have no idea what it is you're going to study. But should you uh, choose a college based on their football team? No, probably not. But Carl, you don't understand. I'm asking if it's God's specific will for me to attend Slippery Rock or OU. And then there are those people who, of course, you know what the answer always is to that. Then there are people who come and they, they want to know, Carl, which house should I buy? I get it wrong again. Well, one that you can afford. One that allows for proximity, uh, one that allows for proximity to your church, one that allows for hospitality. Carl, you're not understanding. Should I buy a house in this subdivision or in that subdivision? And then there's the one that deals with vocation. Carl, should I take this job transfer? Well, not if it means moving your family to a place where there are no true churches. When we were in Las Vegas, we had members who were so desirous of escaping Las Vegas that they took job transfers to areas where there was no Reformed, no Bible-preaching church. And I would always say in sort of our exit interviews as they were preparing to leave, friend, find a church that has the three marks of a true church. And if you can't find one, then you're not worshiping in a true church. Those three marks are the preaching of the word, 
the proper administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of biblical church discipline. But these were folks saying, no, Carl, you don't understand. I, I need to know what is God's will for me and my job. And so when people have come to me and asked me to discern for them the will of God for their life, I slowly, remember I'm usually the slowest guy in the room, I slowly begin to realize what people were asking me for was to be a fortune teller, to predict the future, and, and say, Carl, I, I need you to be able to see into the future. Which should I choose, this person or that person, this program or that program? But in each of these cases that I mentioned, what's needed is not fortune-telling, but wisdom for making decisions, obedience for those areas where God has already spoken, such as your sanctification. Today, I want you to roll up your sleeves and do the work with me. Turn to 1 Peter 2, have your copy of God's Word open. If you've never been with us before, our practice on Sunday morning and Sunday evening as well is to engage in Lectio Continua preaching, meaning consecutive exposition. And so our practice is to move context by context to explain the text and then to apply the text to you. And so you have caught us in the middle of our exposition. We are in 1 Peter 2, verses 15 through 16. And we want to carefully hear the Apostle Peter as he tells you God's will for your life. But we're going to explain what that means. And tells you a tool for silencing the foolish critics of Christianity and he also will raise and speak to the issue of Christian liberty. Let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit now at this time. Our Father, we are profoundly aware today that if you do not send your Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes and give us understanding of this text, we will remain in spiritual blindness. We will leave no better than we came if you do not assist us by giving us concentration and remembrance and, and discernment. And so, Lord, we especially plead that you might enable us to carefully grasp how this word, this very word before us now, applies to us day by day in our homes, in our relationships, in your church, and especially in our culture, which so badly needs our holy lives to be lived out in front of them. We pray now with great expectation of blessing and grace in the name of our only Savior and mediator, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Look carefully at verse 15, at 1 Peter 2. Peter raises the issue of the will of God. And he begins it this way, and you should be leaping up and down at this point. For this is the will of God. And you're thinking, finally, some, some clarity. And what I want to remind you of, I've done this before, but this bears reminding over and over again. Whenever the New Testament uses the phrase, the will of God, the first thing you must do is stop and ask, which type of will of God are we talking about? Because the New Testament uses this phrase in two distinct fashions. And this is where so many evangelicals have, have been confused and fallen into the fortune-telling model of the will of God. And so the first, notice that oftentimes the New Testament uses the term, of the will of God to speak of God's decree, the eternal secret plan of the triune God, his ordaining of, of all things before he ever spoke the first molecule into existence. This is what's meant, for example, in Romans 9.19 when Paul says, who has resisted his will? He's speaking there of God's decree, his foreordination, his sovereign plan. He says it again in Ephesians 1.11 when Paul says, 
God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is what's meant by the Old Testament as well. When Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, you cannot know this will in advance. When I cited those five examples a moment ago, each of those were people asking me to tell them in advance what God's sovereign plan was. The best I can do is say, I have no idea. Your guess is as good as mine. You will receive no private revelations, no prophetic words of knowledge, and anybody who says they have a prophetic word of knowledge, hold on to your wallet tight around people like that. And so the first way that the will of God is used in the New Testament is to speak of God's secret plan, his decree. You cannot know that in advance. The second way, and this is how Peter is using the term, is God's commands for your life, his moral imperatives. You can know these. Indeed, you must know these. Think of some of the examples of this. In fact, let me give you the simplest one. I've had people come up to me, and I, I knew they were coming looking for, you know, a reading, a crystal ball reading. And when they would come up and they would say, Carl, I need to know the will of God for my life. And I'll sort of playfully, I, I usually get in trouble when I do this. My smart aleck gene takes over. But they'll say, I need to know the will of God for my life, and I'll stop them right there. And I'll quote 1 Thessalonians 4.3, where Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words... This is what's commanded you. The second type of the will of God, the second meaning is, is God's moral imperative. So when, when Paul writes, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification that you should obtain for, abstain from sexual immorality, that's God's will. That's his command. Or again, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.17, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul here is not urging the Ephesians to decipher God's decrees and eternal counsels, but rather his commands. And then again, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6, and he says, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters, and do the will of God from the heart. He's saying here, obey this command. It's the, the fifth commandment. And then again, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I can say beyond all any debate, it is always God's will for you to rejoice and be thankful. Paul says so. Or again, Paul writes in Romans 12, Present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so what, what Peter is saying here, look very carefully at verse 15. When he says, this is the will of God, you can see from the context upcoming, what he's saying is, this is the command of God. This is the imperative of God. Now, there are some of you, we, Sandy and I just went through a, a week a couple of weeks ago where we had five grandchildren in our house, and I'd forgotten how inquisitive grandchildren can be. And we are coming up on a month where we will have more grandkids in our house, and so I've decided I really need to be practiced at this, and this is answering the why questions. And so I had, had deep why debates just a couple of weeks ago on why should I eat those carrots? 
And I had, to, I had to give several good reasons because I found one or two reasons wasn't adequate. And so what I want you to do is I want you to stare at verse 15. And I want you to think with me when Peter says, this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What Peter is saying is he gives you one reason why you should obey God's hands, why his commands, why you should do the will of God. But what I want to do is give you 10 reasons this morning. Because there are some who are staring at verse 15 and thinking, optional, may or may not, don't know if I feel like it. I want to give you 10 reasons why you should do the will of God, why you should obey his commands. The first is, is God shows that this is huge, the doing of the will of God by obeying his commands, by making blessings contingent upon doing his will. For example, in Malachi chapter 3, a very familiar passage, God commands his people to tithe, and then he says, he will give blessings for obedience. He will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessings for those who do the will of God. There are some of you who harbor an antinomian view of the Bible, meaning you're against law. And so you're saying, Carl, I, I, I hear the formula in the, the Old Testament in texts like Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 or Malachi 3, blessings for obedience, but I'm pretty sure that all goes away in the New Testament, right? Wrong. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 tells children that they should obey their parents, and then he says blessings will come as a result of that. And so the, the first reason why you should do the will of God is God makes blessings contingent upon doing his will, obeying his command. The second reason why you should do the will of God, do what God commands, is God promises cursings if you do not do his will. For example, the entire chapter of Deuteronomy 28, it's fascinating and chilling. God, after promising blessings for obedience, promises curses for disobedience. A third reason why you should do the will of God is because even in the midst of afflictions, God gives you afflictions to drive you to do God's will, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. Afflictions are to push you towards obedience and doing the will of God. A fourth reason why you should do the will of God, do what God commands, is we're told in Romans 12, the mercies of God are to entice us to do the will of God. The fifth reason why. The scriptures everywhere state that doing the will of God does not put men into bondage, but it is the act of the liberated soul. Doing the will of God does not put men into bondage, but it's liberty. Put off any idea that the will of God, the commands of God, are grievous. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. John says in 1 John 5, his commands are not burdensome. God's commands are always easy compared and light compared to the world. Doing the will of God is not, the, the will of God is not bondage but is liberty. A sixth reason why you should do his will is because if you love Christ, you will always do his commandments. Jesus says so in John 15. A seventh reason. God's will, doing God's will, obeying his commandments, are always wise. Of course they are. They're given by an omniscient God. An eighth reason, uh, an eighth reason why you should desire to do the will of God is obeying his stated will, his commands, 
bring order to a chaotic life. One of the things that you will see as you begin to strive to obey God's will is you'll see an order emerging out of the chaos. A ninth reason why you should do the will of God is when you pray daily for the Lord's will to be done on earth, remember that the doing of God's will is the mark of the family of God. Remember what Jesus says? He says, whoever does the will of my Father who's in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And then the tenth reason. God is telling you the centrality of his will, doing his will so you'll not be surprised at the judgment. Do you remember how Jesus will meet the reprobate? How he will turn to the goats on his left, according to Matthew 7, when he describes the last judgment, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Those are just ten reasons why you should do the will of God. Now, notice how our text proceeds. Look back at our text, 1 Peter 2, verse 15, where Peter says, this is the will of God, and here it comes, the specific command you should obey. By doing good, by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, let's look back at the context. I want you to see the flow of where Peter has brought us from. Look at verse 11. Just above, Peter tells these believers that they're pilgrims. They're not tied to any distinct nation, and neither are we. We are pilgrims. We're passing through. And then in verse 12, we live among the Gentiles, among lost, ungodly men. In verse 13 and 14, as we saw two weeks ago, Peter tells believers that they are to submit to the rulers of whatever the nations or states or counties they find themselves in. And so what we are meant to see is Peter is just leaving the context of verse 13 and 14. He's talking about kings and governors, and he's saying, I'm telling you to obey them not because they are godly men necessarily, because they rarely are. But you should obey them because God has sovereignly installed them. Now, I want you to notice what that brings us to in verse 15. Do you know who the foolish men are that you and I are to do good and put to silence the ignorance of foolish men? Unbelieving rulers. In the context, that is who Peter is speaking of, is unbelieving rulers. Rulers that are making life hard for the church persecuting and harassing them, just as Sandy and I were returning home from Memphis. I was listening to a a news broadcast of how another federal judge has passed onerous laws making life very difficult for believers. What is the believer supposed to do in light of this? Well, first of all, understand who you're dealing with. Look at verse 15 carefully. Fools. Who you're dealing with, in many cases, as rulers, are Fools, foolish men. Who is the fool? Let me remind you from Proverbs who the fool is. Here's what can always be said of the fool. The fool, according to Proverbs 17, thinks wisdom can be bought. The writer of Proverbs 17 says, Why is there in the hand of a fool the purchase price of wisdom, since he has no heart for wisdom? The fool also has no idea about a patient, diligent search for wisdom. 
He doesn't have the concentration for it. Once again, Proverbs 17 says, Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. In other words, the fool has no definite plan. His thoughts are scattered. He cares for those things which are farthest from him. He's deeply concerned about affairs in Washington, D.C., or maybe at our capital in Columbia, while his own household goes to hell. The fool's malicious. We know again from Isaiah 32, he plots to deprive the hungry and thirsty of food and drink. The fool constantly gives out his own wisdom. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in expressing his own heart. The fool never listens to anyone else, according to Proverbs 23, where we're warned, Don't even speak in the hearing of a fool, for he'll despise the wisdom of your words. In fact, we're told in Proverbs 15, the fool spouts folly. We're told there, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The fool is always convinced that what he has to say is profoundly valuable, and of course everyone will want to hear it. Another characteristic of the fool, and this is vital, look at verse 15. You need to know what you're dealing with. You're dealing with rulers in many cases who are fools. The fool, of course, from Scripture. Here's how we can characterize the fool. We don't even have to see that many of them because Scripture lines up the propositions that categorize them. Proverbs 20, the fool loves to quarrel and argue. Proverbs 20 tells us it's honorable for a a man to stop striving, but any fool can start a quarrel. Why does the fool love to quarrel? Because he has no self-control. Proverbs 29 tells us, A foolish man vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them all back. This is why I've had people come to me before and say, Carl, can I just vent for a minute? I'll say, no, you can't. Why? Because then I'd be indulging your foolishness. A fool vents all his feelings. There's more about the fool. The fool never ever learns from his mistakes. Proverbs 26 tells us, just like a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool always repeats his folly. Just like a canine that doesn't have the sense to know that what he's doing is filthy and stupid and unhealthy, just so the fool keeps returning to the same sins, errors, and bad choices over and over. And another thing to know about the fool, he enjoys folly. He loves darkness rather than light. Proverbs 15 tells us folly is joy to him who is destitute of discernment. You know what the root of the fool's problem is? It's not intellectual. It's the heart. Here's the core problem of the fool. Stare at the verse in verse 15. Because here's his core problem. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. You see, the fool... In, in Scripture, is the unbeliever. And so whenever we're dealing with unbelieving rulers, you can be sure we're dealing with fools. Proverbs 14, the fool has said in his heart there's no guard. God, the fool's chief problem is that he's lost. He won't acknowledge the most self-evident truth in all the world that he needs a Savior. 
since he'll be held accountable for all his foolish actions, all his foolish words, all his foolish rebellion. He likes his folly, and he returns to it gladly, just like the dog to the vomit. He hates real wisdom. He doesn't take sin seriously, and he certainly has no conviction of sin. In fact, we're told in Proverbs 14.9, fools mock at sin. He has no reverence for the truth. He would rather believe a lie. And what he's really rejecting is the fear of the Lord. We're told in Proverbs 1, fools hate knowledge. They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. By the way, this is the same language used in Romans chapter 1, where the unbeliever is called there a fool because of his truth suppression. Look at our text carefully in 1 Peter 2.15, where we're told that our strategy, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, The Greek word for ignorance there is the word agnosia, and it indicates more than lack of knowledge. It speaks of an obstinate unwillingness to learn the truth and speaks of those who are senseless in what they say about Christianity. Now look at the strategy we are to have. Look carefully at verse 15. Here's your strategy. This is the will of God for you. To silence fools either by stopping their already slanderous mouths, what they're saying about the gospel and about Christians, or preventing them from speaking at all. The verb used here, silencing, the ignorance of foolish men, is the Greek verb famun, which means to muzzle them. It's the same word used in Matthew 22 when we read that Jesus silenced the Sadducees. It's the same word that is used of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 when he silenced demons. It's the same word used in Mark 4 when Jesus silenced the storm. Why should fools be silenced? Look at verse 15. Why should they be silenced? Well, because they don't have a proper or accurate knowledge of Christians or the gospel or the nature of the Christian life. They're speaking untruth. They're speaking of that which they do not know. What will silence their criticism? Look at verse 15. Humble, submissive, law-abiding conduct, good works. We are told in verse 15, lawsuits won't silence them. Protests in the street won't silence them. Boycotts won't silence them. Good works will silence them. Christians for the first 350 years of the existence of the church were slandered by foolish men. They were called in the first and second century cannibals because Christians spoke of eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. They were called traitors because they would not swear allegiance to Caesar. And it took over 250 years, really closer to 300 years, to finally wear down the slanderous critics of Christianity by steady, kind, humble, faithful, good works. So don't think, well, okay, Carl, I'm going to get busy silencing the ignorance of foolish men. I'm going to engage in good works. I'm going to pay my taxes this year for a change. And I'm going to live submissive, quiet, productive lives And so any critique of Christianity will probably cease by this time next year. No. This is a long term. When you look at verse 15, I hope you're staring at it. This is a strategy for you, your children, your grandchildren, 
This went on for 250 years in the early church. This is a long-term, multi-generational strategy. Now, I want you to notice what it is very specifically that the believer is to be up to. And when verse 15, by doing good. Do you notice that Peter's starting to repeat himself all, already? He's just said in verse 12, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And what we are to see here is Peter knows the first time he says this, it's probably not going to go down so well. It's not going to be quickly accepted. And so he's just stated it in verse 12. How do you deal with an oppressive, harassing culture and even magistrates? You do good. He says it again in verse 15. And Peter, of course, we pointed this out a few weeks ago. Peter is quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, which he heard when Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. A reminder, what are good works? We have a whole chapter in our confession of faith on this. Often believers are skittish about mentioning good works because of Roman Catholic Church's insistence that good works are somehow the instrument of our justification. But no, we need to loudly and repeatedly affirm that good works are the evidence of our conversion, the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the absence of them is the evidence that no work of redemption has occurred in us. A good work has to meet five criteria. A good work must be in conformity with God's word. It has to be that which God has commanded in the scriptures. Second, it must spring from a good conscience in sincerity of heart with right motives. Third, it must be done in the name of Christ. Fourth, it must be done for the glory of God, not for self-aggrandizement. And fifth, it must proceed from faith that rests upon the merit of Christ. Good works are the imitation of Jesus. He was the one who went about doing good, we're told in Acts 10. Good works are always the evidence of saving faith. Good works are those which are ordained and decreed by God for believers to do. Good works are empowered, energized by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Good works strengthen a Christian's assurance, we're told in 1 John 2. And good works now, here we see in our text, silence the critics of Christianity. Think of some examples of good works. Taking a meal, giving a ride, cutting a widow's grass, protecting the unborn, caring for the sick and the poor, ministering to orphans, visiting prisoners. All of those activities listed in Matthew 25 that Jesus will say at the last judgment, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was in prison and you visited me. So we reminded you a few weeks ago, the, the listing of good works is prevalent throughout Scripture. For example, in Leviticus 19, in the Old Covenant, one of the good works that you were to do was when you harvested your field, was to not glean the corners of your field. And if anything fell to the ground, you were to leave it there for the poor to come along afterwards. They still had to work, but they could come in for free, glean your fields. Or... In Proverbs 22, when God promises a blessing to the one who engages in good works and gives generously to the poor. Or in Acts chapter 20, when Paul tells the Ephesian elders, you must support the weak, namely the poor. And when Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 
the wealthier to be rich in good works. Now, Peter does something fascinating in our text. Look at verse 16, where Peter knows what the pushback is going to be. Because he's just told believers in verse 15 that by doing good works, you can put to You can put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. He knows that there will be pushback from believers who think having to obey the magistrate and do good works is bondage to the state. And you hear that now. People say, I don't don't like the governor. I don't like the president. I don't like the Supreme Court judge. And so I don't want to do what they say. I'm not in bondage to them. I'm a free Christian man. Peter says, no. Look at verse 16. You are a bondservant. You're the bondservant of a kind father. Now, hardly any doctrine has been twisted and used as a basis for license and laziness as much as Christian liberty. Paul runs up against this in Galatians 5 when he tells the Galatians they must not use their newfound freedom as an occasion for the flesh. We'll deal this later in 2 Peter chapter 2 where Peter speaks of those who promise others liberty but are slaves of corruption themselves. Now look at those words in verse 16. Peter reminds you as a believer that you are free. Freedom is a a characteristic of someone who has a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great liberator of men. Do you remember how he began his ministry in Luke chapter 4 when he came to preach in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth? And he stood up and opened the, the scroll of Isaiah 61 And he announced the purpose for which the Father had sent him by reading these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And after after reading Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What do these words mean? Well, the background of Jesus' proclamation of liberty was the Jewish Old Covenant year of Jubilee. And what you have here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins by sounding the trumpet of freedom in his hometown synagogue to announce the year of God's Jubilee. He's saying that the Old Testament law was but a a pale shadow of what would happen now that the Messianic reign was being inaugurated. The captives were to be set at liberty through Christ. The year of the Lord's favor meant freedom from all sort of bondage. Again, in John chapter 8, in the midst of a discussion of family origins, the Jews were claiming to be Abraham's family, to be children of the promise, and therefore sons of God, God's freeborn children. Jesus argues with them and says, No, if you were Abraham's sons, if you were free, you would have faith in the Messiah as Abraham did, and adds, it's an encounter with the Son of God that frees you. Now, I want you to think about those words. Look at verse 16. Whenever you're obeying the civil magistrate, don't think, oh, I'm just in bondage. I'm having to pay my taxes. I'm having to obey these laws. This is bondage to do this. No, look at what your status is according to verse 16. You are as free. And you cannot use your liberty as a cloak for vice. What do we mean by freedom? Well, it's a comparative freedom. It's interesting that our confession of faith in chapter 20 of the Westminster says, 
under this, this reign of Christ, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. And our creed is incredibly careful here. We're not saying that Old Testament believers weren't saved by Christ or they didn't have the Holy Spirit. What we're saying is that our experience of liberty is one of degree. Ours is far greater. Think about the believer in the Old Covenant. Mom and dad have a fight just before they come to the temple. What do they have to do? Go pick a a goat out of the flock. Mom and dad had a fight, called each other names, and so they have to bring with them a sacrifice when they come. A few believers in the new covenant now adequately understand what logistically it meant to worship and follow God then. You need a strong stomach for all the bloody sacrifices, and you needed to do the sacrifices. Why? To grind into the consciousness of men that without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins. But today we are at liberty. We don't worship like old covenant believers. According to Paul in Galatians 4, we're free from the constraints of the ceremonial law. But there's more. Look at those words, those little words hanging off of verse 16. You are free men. Our liberty is substantial. Christian liberty now means deliverance from the wrath of God. The relation you had to God before conversion was that of a condemned criminal to an executioner. You were by nature a child of wrath. You had an eternal death sentence hanging over your head. But Jesus came to release the oppressed. The one who believes the gospel message is immediately and forever freed from that awful prison of the dread of the wrath of God. We sing about this in Charles Wesley's glorious hymn, And Can It Be? When Wesley writes those words that we love to sing so much, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation, now I dread. Another thing that Christian liberty is, look at this little word hanging off of verse 16, as free men. Christian liberty is freedom from bondage to Satan. Do you remember what your bondage was before you were converted? Or has it been so long you've forgotten or tried hard to forget? Do you remember who you were in bondage to? Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that you walked According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. But now, through God's sovereign power, you've been taken out of that kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. You've been freed from a cruel taskmaster. There's more. Christian liberty and freedom is freedom from anxiety. Much of our lives are dominated by the effort to control tomorrow, which is beyond our control. But when you're in a saving relationship of trust with the sovereign God, you know this is his world, running according to his plan, and you have nothing to fear or worry, so you can relax and be free. Nothing is going to happen to you that's not for your good and his glory. There's even more. Look at verse 16. This is all wrapped up in this tiny phrase that Peter uses to remind you. By obeying foolish rulers, you're not in bondage to them. You're free. Christian Christian liberty is also freedom from hypocrisy. Many live on the mistaken premise that they can earn God's favor if they put on enough joy displays. Remember what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 6. He points to the Pharisees and he rebukes them one by one. 
Ostentatious acts of public prayer, standing on the street corner and saying your prayers. Ostentatious giving, holding up the coin and saying, look at me, everybody. Do you notice I'm putting, that's a gold coin I'm dropping in the plate. And ostentatious fasting. These were people who put white makeup on their face so that everybody would walk by and say, oh, poor Carl. Look at him. He's been fasting. Doesn't he look awful? He's so weak from fasting so often. How can we be freed from these and other displays? Jesus says in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, by realizing our Father loves us. We do these things not to be accepted, but because God is our Father and has already accepted us. But the key thing that we have liberty from, look at those words, as free men. Peter's refuting the idea that will come from his readers that, Peter, you just want to put us in bondage under the civil state to foolish rulers, ignorant men. Christian liberty is freedom from the bondage of sin. Do you remember what you were like before, before you were converted and you were freed? So completely are the unregenerate under the dominion of sin. According to scripture, they can't come to Christ. They can't hear his word. They can't believe his word. They can't receive the Holy Spirit. They can't please God. Paul will elsewhere characterize the lost man as enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. But thanks be to God. Believers have been delivered from the dominion of sin. It's not that the sinful nature has been completely removed from the believer, but its enslaving power has been broken. Sin will harass them, but they are no longer its slave. So I want to make one careful application to you and I. Look at verse 15. Thought of eight or ten applications, but I, want to, I don't want you to walk out with head reeling saying, I'm not sure what it is I'm supposed to do. I want you to focus on one thing. Look at verse 15. This is the will of God for you. A deep commitment to good works in this culture. That's what Peter tells his New Covenant readers. A deep commitment to good works in this culture. A few weeks ago, Sandy and I had the privilege, and it was a privilege, to attend the annual banquet of Calvary Home for Children. Woodruff Road has been a, a deep supporter. I think we're actually their largest supporter. Has been, because of your generosity, has been a supporter from day one of their existence, Calvary Home for Children. It's a, a glorious ministry of good works. It's an orphanage, caring for those people who have, those children and those families who have nowhere else to turn. I don't know of a more life-changing ministry that takes society's casts off and treats them with love and dignity and prepares them for a productive life. You should choose. You should ask yourself right now. One specific good work. You're commanded to. Look at verse 15. There's no doubt. You should choose one specific ministry, one good work, and give steadily of your time, your money, your prayer, such a ministry will. Look at the promise in verse 15. Such a ministry, such a good work will silence the foolishness of wicked rulers who want to critique evangelical Christians. When they look at a ministry such as this one of Calvary Home, they must say, I don't like their, their morality. I don't like their gospel. But they sure do wade into the most difficult social problems and freely give of their resources, and they are making a change. You now know 
the will of God for your life. Be busy about it. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign Lord, we rejoice that your will of decree is being obeyed perfectly. Oh, that this earth may be made more like heaven in this regard. Lord, we pray that your will of command may be obeyed by men as perfectly, readily, and unceasingly as it is by the angels in heaven. We ask that those who now disobey your commands be taught to obey them, and that those who do obey them may do so more quickly, more cheerfully, more zealously. O Lord, we know that our truest happiness is submission to your will. And so we know it is out of the greatest love for mankind that we pray for all men to know your will, obey it, and happily submit to it. We pray.